Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. All right, good morning. You guys doing all right? All right, glad that you guys are here. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, if you're new, thanks for visiting and hanging out with us. My name's Cody, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so before I jump into today's message, one more quick announcement is next weekend we have a guest speaker that I'm going to be interviewing. And I heard this guy in his story about 10 years ago. He's from France. And it was like, you know what? That's going to be sort of hard for him to come over and teach. Well, he moved to America and um, we got him to come and fly in next week and be a part of what we're doing and tell his story. And so it, it, make sure you're here, of course, but bring somebody because his story is really cool. He was an atheist and um, doing really well in life. And then God grabs a hold of him. And so he's now a theist. So I want you to hear about that next week, so make sure you're here. Okay, so this is the last week of our series, WWJD. Obviously, it's a very 90s vibe. We've been talking 90s stuff. Some of us were raised in the 90s. Some of us raised kids in the 90s. Some of us just heard about the 90s, and I see you're trying to relive it in some of your fashion. And so uh, I figured we would end this with a quick 90s pop culture quiz to see who really knows the 90s. So um, you can tell the people around you, and then I'll ask you what your answers are, right? So first question is this. JTT is the initials of what 90s teen heartthrob? So tell somebody around you real quick. Who do you think JTT is? Okay, not yet. I know you're excited. Yeah, I know you have the calendar. I got it. You're... Now, Gen Z thinks Justin Timberlake is the answer. Incorrect. Who is it? Jonathan Taylor Thomas. That's right. He was on what show? Home Improvement. Yeah, great show. Okay. All right, let's see. Um, what was the name of the first successfully cloned sheep? Ooh, that's it. just go ahead and yell that one out if you know it. What is Dolly, yeah, Dolly. You guys remember Dolly. Um, what city was the epicenter of grunge music? Seattle, okay. Uh, this one's a little tougher. What fictional show was filmed in an Aurora, Illinois basement? I heard it, Wayne's World, right, okay. Yeah, you guys remember that? All right, now Gen Z, this might be tricky. There was a band, Three Brothers, what was the name of the band in their most famous song? Okay, so it, it's a little tricky. <laughs> Some of you guys are. Okay, what's the band? Hanson. Who thought Jonas Brothers? Don't you lie. You thought it was Jonas Brothers. All right, um, let's see. Um, As If was made famous by what movie? Clueless. Clueless. I got to be honest, you guys are killing it right now. Saturday night, they just looked at me like, this is not funny. Get to the word, brother. And I was like, all right, let's go. Um, what show is considered the first reality TV show? Real World. Some people thought Survivor. Incorrect. TV show theme started with whatever happened to predictability? Not Fuller House. Excuse me? How old, how old is the person that said that? Teenager. I knew it. Full House. Uh, what did TRL stand for? Total reclass. And who was, the, who was the host? Carson Daly. All right. Uh, what's the infamous haircut inspired by a must-see TV sitcom? Friends. What was the haircut called? The Rachel. Yeah, the Rachel. My daughter gave herself the Rachel when she was three, when her mother wasn't looking. Anyway. 
so today is going to be the last of a uh, series that we've done. If you haven't been here, or you just need a little reminder. Week one, we started with the question, WWJD, or what would Jesus do? We looked kind of at that old school. It was from the 90s, but it actually was from the 1890s where the question was original. And this question really helps us to be like Jesus. And that's what we just sung about, is we ask this because as people who follow Jesus, we're his disciples, what we want to do is we want to become more and more like him. And so whenever we're in situations and we find ourselves in different circumstances, we ask this question, what would Jesus do? Because that's what I'm going to do, because I want to be like him. And then Doyle said, well, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's a great question, but there's other WWJD questions like, what would Jesus demand? And the first thing that Jesus would demand is that we be with him is he doesn't just want us to emulate a lifestyle. He doesn't want us to follow certain rules. He wants to have a relationship with us. And so he would demand that we spend time with him. Well, this is going to be the result. If we do these first two things, this is the last WWJD, which is watch what Jesus does. Once you've done these first two things, you've done your part. Now it's time to sit back and watch what Jesus does. And I'm going to explore this a little bit with some stories, two stories that Jesus is in in the book of Mark. And so if you're not a Bible person, you don't know much about the Bible, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are stories of Jesus and his life. And in the specific book of Mark, we believe it's written by a guy named John Mark, who went and he followed Peter around, was a companion of him. And Peter would get up and preach these sermons and tell these stories about Jesus. And he would record them and then pass them on so that other people in in different regions would be able to hear about Jesus. And later on, John Mark became friends with Paul as well. So we're going to be in the first chapter of Mark. Here's what it says. A man with leprosy came to him. Now, you probably are familiar with leprosy. If you've been to a third world country, you may even have encountered leprosy before. But this isn't necessarily leprosy. This is just any skin disease because they didn't have modern medicine, so they weren't able to differentiate between what it was. So he had some sort of skin disease, but whatever it was, he had rules that he had to follow. He was an outcast. So he wasn't allowed around groups of people. He had to be outside of the cities and the villages. He had to dress with torn clothes, unkept hair. And every time he saw somebody, he had to yell unclean so that they would know not to approach him. Continues on. With leprosy, came to him and begged him on his knees. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this leper, he's pretty much giving us the biblical example of what faith is. Faith can be broken down into two parts. The the two parts are belief and trust. That's what biblical faith is, is belief. So belief, I believe that you can do it, Jesus. In his circumstance, I believe that you could heal me. But we, we believe certain things about Jesus and who he is based on not blind faith, but based on his character, what he's done in the past, the claims that he's made, the evidence for the faith. We believe he can. That's why we pray. That's why we ask God for certain things, is we believe he can do it. Now, here's where we get messed up. And then there's a second part, which is trust. It's, and this is very important, so notice the distinction. I trust your will. I trust your will. Where we get confused is we think it's, I trust you will. Big difference between I trust your will and I trust you will. See, when I trust your will, it means I trust whatever you do, whether you answer my prayer or not, is going to be the right thing. That whatever the outcome is, wherever you take me to, that is what's going to be best for me and for the people around me and for your overall mission in the world. And so I trust your will. A lot of people get disappointed because they think, well, if I just believe enough and I trust, then you will do what I ask you to do. 
No, no, no. He will do what he wills to do. Big difference. All right, let's continue on. Jesus was indignant. Now, that seems like a weird response. This man with leprosy comes up and he asks Jesus for healing. Seems like a pretty simple request and one we would all make. And yet Jesus is angry. Why is he angry? Well, he's not angry at the leper. He's angry because of what the leper is experiencing. See, Jesus is the creator of all. Of you, me, and everything in the universe. And when he created all of this, he had certain purposes and designs and, and things in mind. And when he looks at the leper, he just goes, this is not what I had intended. This man is broken. He is shattered. Physically, of course, but emotionally and relationally, everything is a mess. And so he just looks at this and he goes, this is not what I wanted for my creation. The reason is because of this thing called sin. In a moment, we'll talk about the consequences of it, but let's continue. He reached out his hand and touched the man. This is my imagination, but I think in that moment, there's people watching this take place, and as Jesus reaches out to touch the leper, they pull back and gasp a little bit and go, no, 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 don't do that. Don't touch him. I mean, whatever you're going to do is fine, but just don't touch him because not only could you get the disease, but now you're ceremonially unclean and nothing good can come out of this. Jesus, you got to step back and you got to step away from this guy. But I think, I think Jesus knew something because he didn't have to touch this man, but he, he knew something about healing and not just miraculous things. So about 10 years ago, I went to a therapist because I was struggling with severe anxiety and as we were talking through the different things, he asked me a really weird question. He said, Cody, how often do you experience physical touch? And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, Amy? Because, like, <laughs> the answer is always not enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> she's not in this service. I didn't say that last service. I looked at her, she's not there, so I get away with it. He goes, no, not that. Um... Like, how often do you guys hold hands and just hug and cuddle on the couch and even with the kids snuggle with them? How often do you do that? And I'm thinking, I mean, it's not really like my vibe, you know? Like, I grew up in a house where it's like, I think I can remember three hugs. I don't know, you know? It's not really our thing. He goes, well, here's what you need to do is I want you to make it a point to experience physical touch on a daily basis. Because, and there's all this science that backs it up and why this happens, but it will change you. It will relieve stresses and even depression because we need physical touch. And so that's one of the things that's going to help you relieve this anxiety that you're feeling. Can you imagine this man who probably has not experienced physical touch for years? And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes and he just, he touches him. It would probably be overwhelming just to experience physical touch, but then you have this person named Jesus who could miraculously heal you. There had to be healing that took place before Jesus even did anything just by that simple touch. See, Jesus is, he's different. He's different than you and I because there was all these rules, there's all these religious practices, the political correct things that you're supposed to do, and he bypasses all of them and just goes, no, 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 I'm here for something completely different. I'm here to show love and compassion and bring healing, which is what he's doing. Next verse. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Think about waking up that morning as the leper. Your whole life is in shambles. You probably have very little to live for. And then that night you're going to go to bed completely changed. What happened? Jesus spoke a couple simple words to you. 
That in a moment's time, your life gets turned upside down, and as we say around here, Jesus changes everything like that. See, that's why we plaster this all over sweatshirts and all over the campus, and because of stories like this and stories that we've all experienced, which we have an encounter with Jesus, and in that moment, he transforms our entire lives. Now, if you're a skeptic and you're a person who's not too sure about faith, one of the questions that might come to your mind is, okay, that's all good and well, but if Jesus is all that great, why did he allow this to happen in the first place? <laughs> why all the suffering? Why have leprosy in the world? That's a great question. It's a deep question. It's a question we could spend all day talking about, but I think we see one of the answers to that question, which is suffering is one of the things that brings us to Jesus in the first place. If he wasn't a leper, would he have ever been motivated to come and find Jesus? No. Suffering has this ability to clear away all of our self-sufficiency, all of the things that we're busy with in life, the questions that we avoid, and it really makes us exposed to the reality of, of life. And one of the things that it can do is it can push you towards Jesus, to look for strength in places that you haven't looked for strength because you haven't needed it. And so it either pushes you closer to Jesus or it can actually push you further away, but it can't leave you indifferent. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, we look at this leper and we look at all the other things in the world and it is a tragedy. And it is not what God intended, but yet it is something that God seems to be able to use. Verse 43. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. So Jesus is going, look, you're going to blow up my spot if you go up there and you start telling people about it. All right? People are going to hear that I'm doing these miracles, I'm healing, and I'm, I got a plan, I have an agenda, and I can't be stopped. And so can you just keep it between you and I? And that guy goes, got it. And then he goes and he does exactly what you and I would do, which is tell everybody what happened. Uh, you know, I've been healed. There's this man named Jesus. You should go and you should meet him. He can heal you too. And that's exactly what happens. Is The next scene is Jesus is in his friend's house. He's teaching and he's preaching. People hear that he's there. And so they start crowding in the house. Eventually, it's so flooded with people. It's pouring out. People are surrounding the house. And we get to the next story. Here's what it says. Some men came. Bring it to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get, to get him, him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So here's the scene. He's teaching. He's in the middle of probably something profound. All of a sudden, start from the ceiling starts falling down on him, and then there's daylight. And he goes, I don't remember there being a skylight in this house. Well, there it is. And then this guy starts being lowered down. Immediately when I read this story, I have a couple questions. First question is, who's going to repair that roof? I read that and I go, that's a mess. Someone's going to have to fix that. Second question I have is, who has friends like this? Like, it's hard to maintain friendships as an adult. I can't imagine having friends like this. I, I might have family members that are willing to do this, but think about what kind of friend it takes. Because not only are they willing to climb up and lower him down, but they probably care for him on a day-to-day -day basis. Because he can't do anything. He can't feed himself, he can't change himself, he can't bathe himself, he's completely helpless and dependent upon his friends. And yet, here they are. One of the things that I appreciate about this, this story is the persistency of the friends 
that they have that they want their, their buddy to see Jesus. Like they're going to do anything and everything in order for their friend to see Jesus because they know this is the only hope. This is the only place for healing. There is nothing else in the world that can do what Jesus can do. It's a little convicting because I wonder, not only do I have friends like that, but am I a friend like that? Like, am I getting up and I'm going, man, I got friends who need to know Jesus. They need to see Jesus. I'm doing whatever it takes to make sure that they know Jesus. I don't care what it costs. I don't care what I have to do. My life is focused on people knowing Jesus. It's a little convicting. All right, let's continue. When Jesus saw, and I underline this, their faith. See, we live in a highly individualistic society where we have said that faith is personal and it's private and it's between you and God or the universe or whatever. But the scripture knows nothing of this individual faith. It actually describes faith as a team sport. It's something that we do together. It's why when Jesus came on the scene, one of the first things he does is he gets 12 disciples together. And then he says, you need to start this thing called the church. It's going to be a movement of people who are going to come together and do life together in pursuit of me. There is no such thing as a lone range Christian. My daughter, who's 11, came home this last week and she said, Dad, I had a conversation with one of my friends about Jesus. And I said, oh, well, tell me how that went. She said, well, they all know I'm a pastor's kid and, you know, we practically live at the church and they were asking me uh, about that. And, and I asked them, well, are you a Christian? And her friend responded, yes, I am a Christian. And her immediate follow-up question was, what church do you go to? And the friend responded, well, I don't go to church. And my daughter's response was, well, then how are you a Christian? <laughs> okay, I thought that was a decent question. I mean, I probably wouldn't have phrased it like that. I might have been like, hey, you should come to my church or something like that. But <laughs> she is my child, so she just, okay, let's go. And, you know, I understand because the scripture knows nothing of Christians who are not a part of the family, <laughs> who aren't a part of a church. It's from day one, this is how Jesus said that we are to live, as we're supposed to do life together. And we see the benefits of this in this story. Okay, continue on. Saw their faith. He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. The friends and the paralyzed man hear this, and they probably think, okay, uh, that's nice, Jesus. I mean, I always appreciate that, you know, who doesn't want their sins to be forgiven. But I kind of have more immediate needs that I'm wrestling with right now, um, like the ability to walk. Uh, I would really like to address that. So can we get to the more immediate things? And what Jesus is saying is there's nothing more important than this. You may think that you have these immediate needs and most of your prayers to God are things about what you believe needs to be addressed. But Jesus says those are just symptoms. Like, yeah, you have brokenness in probably every arena of your life that you would like dealt with. And look, he will deal with those things. But you first have to deal with what the root issue is. The reason why your life is broken is because you have been separated from your creator. This thing called sin enters into the world and into our lives, and it's a rebellion against God. And the consequence of that rebellion and of that sin is everything is destroyed and broken, including your body. And so God can come and he can fix those things, but if he doesn't fix the underlying issue, you still have the, the same problem. And that's what Jesus came to address. Is he says, I want to address what your real issue is. is your real issue is sins, and they need forgiven. Next verse. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, so here's their rationale, and it makes sense, and it lines up with Scripture, but let's see if I can give a practical example. 
Let's imagine that we're all hanging out in the lobby after service, and some guy comes up to me, and you're watching this all take place, comes up to me, and he goes, Cody, your sermon was weak. I didn't like it at all. And you might half agree with him, so you're kind of wondering how this, how this is going to go. And then he just pulls back, and he punches me right in the face. I'm guessing that you wouldn't walk up to that guy and go, I forgive you. No, I get it. I get it. I, I've wanted to do it for a long time. I forgive you. <laughs> you, you probably w- you wouldn't do that, right? You know why you wouldn't do that? It's because he didn't punch you in the face. He punched me in the face. And so I'm the one that has to forgive him. Because the one who has been offended or an offense has been brought on to, they're the person who has the right to forgive. So let's see if we can put this together. Jesus says that he can forgive people of sins. Well, who is being offended or who's the offense against when it comes to sin? God. Sin is an offense against God. So who is the person who can forgive sins? God. So when Jesus comes along and he says, no, I can forgive sins, what is he saying? He's saying, I am God. Whenever people ask, well, where does it say that Jesus is God? I don't see him explicitly stating that. It's everywhere. You just gotta look for it. In a moment, he's actually going to double down on this. Let's continue verse, uh, verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? This would be quite a scene. So he heals a leper. He, hear, he heals a paralytic. And now he can read minds. This Jesus is somebody. But what, what happens here, and I've... I've known this verse for a very long time. I've preached on it before. But as I was studying, one of the people that, um, that I was reading said this answers a, answers a very important question. And one I had never asked before. If you go back a couple verses, when he says to the paralytic, your, sons are forgi- your sins are forgiven, what's missing? Well, in, in the scriptures, it's very clear that if you want to be forgiven of your sins... You have to do what? Repent. And where does it say that this man repented? Nowhere. So what's taking place? Well, we don't know what was going on with the paralyzed. Maybe he couldn't even speak. Maybe he had nothing to say. But because Jesus could look into his mind and into his heart, he saw that this man was desiring grace, that he wanted forgiveness. And even though he didn't say a word or couldn't say a word, he looks in and he goes, you're forgiven. I can see the desire in your heart. I know you. I know this is what you want. Even if you can't say it, even if you haven't said it, I know that you want to be forgiven. It's as if Jesus is aggressive with his grace. He just goes, I'm looking for people who have repentant hearts. I want people. I just want to give them grace. He is so different than we are because that's not how we are. When it comes to forgiveness, we are people who hold it pretty tight and it's hard to give it away. We'd rather be bitter and angry at the people who have wronged us. But he is out and he's aggressive with his grace. He's looking for people that he can love and show compassion to. See, you can see this in, in all the other stories. Is If you don't understand the dynamic and what's happening, sometimes it can seem kind of cold and But when Jesus comes along to this man, he calls him son. It's like he he bends down and he looks at this guy whose life has just been shattered and he goes, it's okay, son. I'm here now. I've got you. Everything's going to be okay. 
You see this when he, he goes to the bedside of a young girl who has died and everyone around is mourning the loss of this precious life. And, and what does he do? He, he says to the girl, honey, it's time to get up. Sweetheart, let's go. See, I'm a dad and I, I do this. Actually, I did it this morning. Uh, my wife asked me to get my daughter up and she's not really a morning person, so it was kind of a treacherous um, demand, but I go in there, and I'll first try, honey, it's time to get up, sweetheart. No, I don't want to do it. So when she's being a little stubborn, I'll sing a song. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory, children of the Lord. Yeah, and then she'll get up because she doesn't want to hear it again. But I can just imagine standing around, losing your child, and then Jesus comes in just like a parent waking their kid up in the morning, and he goes, honey, it's time to get up. That's enough. Let's go. When you, when you hear this, when you see this in the scriptures, even if you're not a Christian and you're not even sure what you believe, when I read about the person of Jesus, he is so different than me. He's different than anyone I've ever met. In fact, I couldn't have created a person like this if I, if I tried to. He's so other. And when I read about Jesus, I just go, you know, I trust him. I trust this man. Like, I want to be with this guy. This guy knows more about life. He knows about, more about me. I trust him with my life and living it more than I trust myself because he's a better person than I am. The authority, the power, the conviction, the love, the compassion, everything about him just cries out that I could trust this man. And so here's how this story uh, ends the next couple verses. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. So he kind of pushes back on him, and he goes, yeah, okay, I got a trick question for you. Which one's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to this paralyzed man, get up and walk? And on the surface, it seems like, well, the easier thing to say is your sins are forgiven. Because how do you verify that? How do you prove that? Your sins are forgiven. You go, oh, okay. I don't, how do I know? But if he says, get up and walk, and that person is still paralyzed, well, that's pretty easy to see. But what's actually more difficult is to say your sins are forgiven and actually be able to do it. Because only God can do that. And so he puts them in a corner, just like Jesus does, and then says this. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he doubles down. <laughs> this, this phrase, Son of Man, is actually an Old Testament title for the Messiah. And he applies it to himself. And so what he's saying is, I am the Messiah, and I'm also God. If you've ever wondered why they would crucify somebody who just seems so loving and caring, it's because of statements like this, where he went, now what are you going to do with me? I, I, you've seen who I am. You've seen that I'm worthy of trust. You've seen what I've been able to do. And so let me close the loop for you. Here's who I am. What are you going to do? Oh, and then he backs it up with this final verse. He says, so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So he makes these huge claims, and then he goes, oh, you don't believe me? 
don't you just go ahead and get up and walk and let's go. When I look at this person, this is no ordinary person. When I look at what he can do and the claims that he has made and the character that he has, I trust him. And so I was trying to think of, okay, how do I just boil this all down to like a really, because I'm a simple guy. I need just a very simple message that I can walk away with. And here's what I came up with. At least it makes sense to me. Trust leads to transformation. See, the leper, he had to trust that Jesus actually was who he claimed to be because he had to break all these rules in order to even encounter him. He could get himself seriously in trouble, and yet he does that because he trusts Jesus. Same with the paralytic and his friends. I mean, they had to do an incredible amount just to get face-to-face with Jesus. They trusted him. And what happened? The result was when they trusted, it led to transformation. And that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means I trust you. First and foremost, I trust you with my salvation. Meaning, I can't earn this. I, I can't do anything. Uh, you know what? I, I'm just going to have to accept the gift that you have given me because of the death you died on the cross. It's all a gift. And so my eternity is not based on what I can do, but what you have done for me. And so I, I trust you. And then we go right down the line. Okay, and I also trust you with my marriage and with my family. However you say I'm supposed to live this life, I'm supposed to love them, that's what I'm going to do and arrange things in order to, to point people towards you. And my life is a reflection of yours. That's, that's what I'm going to do. And when it comes to my money and it comes to my time and it comes to my resource and it comes right on down the line, I go, I trust you. Whatever you want me to do, my answer is yes. And here's what happens. Is as you say yes, day after day to I trust you, you'll begin to be transformed. It may not happen overnight. It may be you look back over a lifetime and you look back and you go, wow, I am a completely different person than I, I used to be. It's because every day I got up and I say, I trust you. I trust you with this. I trust you with this. I've been reading an author who says that we live in the age of anxiety. Everybody around us, maybe even including yourselves, feel like the world is out of control. You're not sure which way is up. You don't know what the future looks like. There's a loss of purpose and meaning and identity. He says the Christian should be, and I like this phrase, a non-anxious presence in the world. Meaning you know the answer to all those questions. You know what the end looks like. You, you know who wins. And you know where your purpose and identity and all those, all those questions have been answered. And so our job is to go into the world as it spins and we're supposed to be a non-anxious presence. No, you are like me in which you're not always a non-anxious presence. You may struggle with anxiety, maybe even severe anxiety and worry and fear. And so one of the things that the scripture says is when we experience worry and fear, oftentimes it's because it's an area of our life that we have not given to Jesus and are trusting him with. If, if you were, and I talked to someone after service and he said, well, you know, I, I have these, you know, medical diagnosis of anxiety, I have to do this. I go, look, look, I get that. I'm with you. Anxiety is multifaceted, lots of different, but, but just, a, just a real simple test that you may need to ask yourself is next time I feel fear and anxiety and worry, I can ask myself, am I, first and foremost, doing what Jesus would do? So, so we go back to th- these questions again. Is, okay, I'm, I'm anxious. What would Jesus do in this situation? Am I doing that? 
okay, I'm doing that. I think I'm on the right path. I'm doing what he would do. And then my next question is, okay, well, if I'm doing that, um, what would Jesus demand? He'd, he'd want me to spend time with him. So have I come in prayer and in fasting and in worship and I've brought this issue to him and I feel like he's guiding me and empowering me. And then once I have done those two things, now, okay, so my dad used to do this all the time and it would really bother me, but I get it now, is I would come to him with a fear or something I'm anxious about and I begin to just, here's my issues, fix this, here's the problems. And he would stop me and go, Cody, and he wouldn't use this terminology, but in essence, he would say, would you, did you do your part? Meaning, are you living like Jesus, and have you spent time with him? No, I mean, not yet, but like, let's, let me tell you about what my problems are. And he goes, no, I want to hear about it. This is back to the whole non-hugs and stuff like that, but no, I want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. Because you haven't done these things. So once you've done these things, you can come back, and then we'll talk about them. And there's wisdom, because if I did these two things, usually it was resolved after I did them. And then my job is this, is I've lived like Jesus, I've spent time with him, and now I'm just going to watch what he does. Okay, I trust you. I trust you. I've done what you called me to do. I've spent time with you. I know that we're, we're relationally good. And so now my job is to simply step back and say, I trust you with the outcomes. Whatever the outcomes are going to be, the answer is yes. Now, can you just imagine if you were able to live like that? Like this week, as you encounter something that brings anxiety and fear into your life, if you were able to just do this and then step away and go, and I'm free from that worry now because I've done what I was supposed to do. Now I just sit back and watch what Jesus is going to do. You know, it, it may take a lifetime to figure out how to fully do this, but, but we can start this week. Maybe the challenge is, and I wanted to make it super practical, and this is something I'm pretty much preaching to myself, is this week when I experience fear and anxiety and worry, I'm just going to go back to these things. And here's what's crazy, and it brings it full circle, is as I do these things, and I begin learning how to trust Jesus more and more, and through that trust, he transforms me. He's going to transform me into becoming more like him, which is what I was aiming to do all along. So this week, and in the coming weeks, WWJD, I don't know, you should ask. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for being so good to us, um, for giving us guidance. You didn't leave us here to be wandering on our own in the darkness, uh, but you have come in order to reveal yourself to us so that we may know not only just how to live, but how to know you more importantly. And so Lord, we just pray that as we walk out, whether we wear these bracelets or not, that you would put this at the forefront of our mind because our goal ultimately is not to become more like the celebrity on TV, more like an idealized version of ourselves, but to become more like you. So Lord, give us the power and the strength to be able to do that. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday morning. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.